Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 1st, 2020, a new month, 33 days until the election. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary, with me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. Uh, there's polling out, there's a lot of polling out today, this morning, uh, that does not capture the debate as yet, though most of the statistically viable polling after the debate suggested that Biden, you know, Biden was the win. If anyone could have said, have be said to have won that debate, Biden was the winner, or, or maybe Trump was just the larger loser. Uh, but the polling is um, calamitous for the president. We now we have uh, four polls this morning. Uh, three uh, have Biden up by eight points. One has Biden up by nine. And yesterday, Rasmussen, the friendliest pollster to the president, who presumably bends over the who the firm presumably bends over backwards to weight the voter that they think uh, will be uh, most useful to the president has it an eight-point race with Biden in the lead. Other friendly pollsters, uh, Trafalgar and Susquehanna, are showing Biden with leads in the three Rust Belt states that handed Obama the presidency. Uh, Arizona is, at best, uh, uh, a race that um, Biden is only up a little bit in. We have crazy polls suggesting a tie in Georgia and in South Carolina. So uh, we really have to prepare ourselves for the possibility that we are in the middle of the Trump meltdown. Noah. Yeah, I, I, that's, well, I mean, the, the the heavy lift there is that no one has actually done that. I mean, if you look at the, just the, uh, University of Virginia's crystal ball analysis of all the states that, you know, polling averages well outside the margin of error, uh, outside the range of what would be a, a toss-up race. Um, all the Democrats states from 2016 are pretty firmly in their camp, including places like Nebraska's second. And um, if you just count those and, and eliminate the toss-ups, which they have as Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, Maine, second, and Iowa, all of which were Republican territory. Joe Biden gets 279 electoral votes. So that's the presidency. And that's just without toss-up states. Um, so yeah, the prospect of everything moving in the wrong direction at the worst possible moment for Donald Trump looms very large. And there has been very little serious exploration of what the prospect of a, a single term for Donald Trump and a Biden presidency would mean. Um, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that later in the show. Um, just to depress you all as much as is humanly possible. Um, politically, that now the question is when the polls start to capture uh, the debate. Um, so the audience numbers are in. Uh, there was a brief flurry of expectation that it, as we even talked about here, that the audience might be um, might have cratered, uh, just as audiences for all kinds of things have cratered. 
And that does not appear to be the case. Without streaming numbers, meaning people watching on computers and stuff like that, uh, the number uh, 73 million people watched the debate. Uh, all There are these various statistical measures according to which people were, did not turn it off. They watched it all the way through. And um, so one, if, if there were ever a way to capture the question of whether or not 7 or 8 million people were watching on computers or Hulu or whatever, um, chances are that it was the equal of the two, 2016 debate uh, between Hillary and uh, and Trump, which was, except for the Reagan-Carter debate in 1980, which, by the way, slammed the door on Carter. I mean, Carter was already losing, but Reagan won by 10, according to everything that we know that debate's consequences were that whoever was on the fence, you know, an uh, overwhelming number of people on the fence just slid toward Reagan after that debate. So if 81 million people watched and watched all the way through, we're going to see in the next three or four days what the consequences of that were. Christine, where do you, based on... um, based on your own unscientific focus group. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm one of those people who watched it streaming. I don't have cable television. So uh, my kids and I watched it by streaming it on YouTube into our TV. Um, the, 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 the fact that we all seem to have watched it to the end suggests that that should be like the new masochist number for, for television ratings. But um, no, I think it's going to show a hit for, for uh, Trump because the, the takeaway, the, the non-statistical uh, takeaway I've seen um, among a range of people on the left and the right, it, it's not as if it was an obvious victory for Biden. I mean, he didn't do that well. But by comparison, temperamentally, he look, he just ended up looking better. Um, and we... Um, Noah and I are each writing about some of the policy stuff that came out during that debate that has gotten completely buried under the discussion of, you know, how it's obviously the the, the end of democracy because our, our current president has gone off the leash and interrupts a lot. Um, I mean, it's a terrible performance by Trump and whatever strategy he was pursuing was bad and didn't work. So I'll be curious to see if he changes course for the next debate, but it uh, maybe you guys can tell me, do people tend to tune in more to the first debate than the the Debates that follow? I believe, yes. Yeah, so this was just bad all around for Trump. I mean, you know, that that is an interesting question, is whether uh, whether this uh, this, this uh, train wreck uh, was was exciting in a train wreck way, which means you got to watch the next ones to see <laughs> whether the train is wrecked again. The next one, the second one, and of course, next week there is the um, Harris-Pence uh, debate, um, which will uh, be a debate of no uh, uh, electoral uh, consequence, but um, which could end up alarming Democrats because uh, Pence is likely to uh, eat Kamala's lunch, um, which people don't really seem to have reckoned with. Uh, but nonetheless, it won't matter. I mean, right. I would say easily the most substantive debate in modern American history uh, was the one between Lieberman and Cheney in 2000. And uh, it is what it was one of the great sort of public events of our time. If what you're interested in is substantive disagreement on central points of you know philosophy that all, nonetheless showed a kind of commonality about the American experiment, and of course it made it had no made no difference whatsoever. <laughs> uh, 
But so, it was how you wanted a debate to be in the yeah. sense that there was not, the, the, there was no mutual contempt. There was deep disagreement that was, you know, uh, uh, discussed in a way that was civilized and yeah. informative for the viewer. Quite, quite the opposite, quite, by the way. I, I should mention that commentary roasted Dick Cheney. We did this year is the first year in the last 10 that we will not be having a roast because of the pandemic. We roasted Cheney in 2012, 2013. I can't remember what year. And Joe Lieberman was one of the roasters. Friendly, lovely, great event. They're friends. They like each other. And, you know, it was a kind of. Given our present moment, it was kind of a stunning thing to see this happen. Uh, anyway. But, uh, the next presidential debate will be a town hall format. And you can set your watches by the punditry that will follow because it the president will, by and large, not be directing his responses to his opponent, but to an audience member. He will probably be more subdued and more disciplined. And the punditry afterwards will be, he got the message. Donald Trump has changed course, changed direction, and man, we better look out. This could change the trajectory of the race. Nothing has changed the trajectory of this race. From day uh, one, the president, from day one, he has held, Joe Biden has held a five to seven point steady lead over Donald Trump in the polling averages. Yeah, but I don't think anyone will say he got the, that Trump got the message and disciplined himself. I mean, I don't, I don't even, that's sort of not in the, um, paradigm for talking about his presidency i don't think i mean even even if he, if, if, remember. if he does better it'll it will be because he he sort of organically responds better to an audience or something but you know if, if trump is is um sort of falling apart now if the campaign is imploding if the if he's sunk and i'm, I'm not sure he is but he may he certainly may be it would make sense because a couple months back when he sort of his numbers started to rise um, more and he, he was it was looking like things were going to get competitive. Um, a number of things had to happen for him to keep going on that uh, on that path. Um, one, we expect we the, there was the possibility that Biden would actually have some sort of meltdown and implode and publicly embarrass himself in this spectacular way. Um, and there was a lot of sort of tension and drama building up to that because we had been seeing him less and less. Um, the other is that the COVID numbers were then going down when Trump was starting to rise. And we had said, well, if that continues up until, you know, November, that's going to, but that is not quite the case now. That is a, that is a, a more depressing and complicated, um, picture, uh, for Trump and, um, his law and order message didn't quite take either. Um, people are sick of the unrest, but but there no one um, sort of followed his lead on this. Also, um, there it's not that things aren't improving at the margins. The economy is improving at the margins. The COVID death toll is certainly improving at the margins. Uh, even though the caseload right. uh, is rising, um, either the disease is less virulent or 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 uh the treatments are better or the kinds of people who are getting sick are not the kinds of people who are going to die from it though we don't know what the long-term health consequences will be but we've settled into a kind of doldrums 
And if you're in a doldrums, which is defined as, you know, uh, uh, a, a place in water, right, where um, nothing is moving, if you're like in a sailboat, you're just sitting there because there's no wind and there's no tide and you're just flat, uh, how Trump can get up ahead of, you know, can get up, there aren't headwinds against Trump. It's more like uh, entropy as it is properly defined. We're always using the word entropy scientifically incorrect, though though um, symbolically or rhetorically correct, which is, of course, that um, that the path of... Uh, the path of an object starts to degrade over time. It doesn't just, you know, it's not that it just keeps going and going and going without, but it, it, but also the, there is a degrading of the path. And so if Trump was, you know, heading somewhere, he's got nowhere to go. The heading required him to pick sort of like to latch onto some kind of a wave, right? An economic wave, the V-shaped recovery, a change in the COVID news, uh, a general turn toward optimism in the body politic. And for for all kinds of reasons, that just hasn't happened. So um, his natural, you know, there, there could be just a kind of degrading effect rather than the two things that could have happened, one of which is the coming home, right? The coming home is what'll happen if the race ends up close, but Biden wins, which is Republicans will tend to come home and vote for, and the so people who largely are on the right side of the spectrum and vote on the right side of the spectrum will come home and vote for Trump, but it won't, won't be enough. Um, so that, that could happen, but that's a natural effect. The question of whether some kind of change in the American weather could then say, you know, we should stick with this guy. Things are kind of improving and that Biden guy is too left-wing and all that. I just don't know what argument is being made at this moment that Trump should get a second term if you haven't decided that he should get a second term already. Uh, you know, Trump wants to make the argument that Biden shouldn't have a first term, which is kind of the right approach, but he hasn't managed to flip this into the famous referendum on the challenger rather than the referendum on the incumbent. Is there a way that he can do that? It's October 1st. The election is November 3rd. That's 31 days, half October. It's 34 days. I said 33, 34. Anyway. I mean, no, I don't. I mean, I don't think so because, well, there are two two things. I mean, I like a lot of people. I, I just got my mail-in ballot yesterday because DC is distributing um, mail-in ballots to everybody in the district this year. Uh, so people are already starting to vote in some places. So you know, there's there's a certain percentage of Americans who made up their mind and already are casting their votes. Um, I don't think that uh, barring a kind of, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton email type revelation, which doesn't seem to exist, right, in terms of all the political issues we're looking at, uh, there could be a dramatic shift. Although I will say this, I don't think it's in the interest of the Biden campaign and they haven't been touting his his lead because there is that effect of voters who think, oh, well, it's in the bag for my candidate, so I don't even really need to go vote. He's so far ahead. It's clearly going to be a thrashing. Um, they still need to turn out and vote. So they're kind of keeping that message out there. But I I mean, barring a true October surprise, I don't see how he, how he uh, transforms things. And uh, honestly, given his temperament, which was on full display during the debate, 
um, even if there was some sort of you know foreign policy crisis or or domestic terror crisis. I actually think that would shift more people towards Biden just because temperamentally the last image they have of Donald Trump in their minds right now is him, you know, shouty and interrupty and all the stuff he was doing on Tuesday. I think you can see the gigantic uh, tactical error that Trump made last summer by uh, not only by involving his the foreign policy of the United States in his pursuit, political pursuit of a bad news story against Joe Biden and Hunter Biden in in Ukraine, which uh, was a you know aside from being a uh, <clears throat> abuse of power, I, I think, um, was this was something that uh, he should have kept his powder dry on, and then let his actual campaign try to do what it had to do rather than using the levers of power of the United States government, um, which of course didn't really work for him anyway to do it um, because uh, the Hunter Biden story was uh, thoroughly kind of aired uh, enough, by the way, so that the press now can ignore it by saying it did its due diligence in 2019. They're a big story in the New Yorker, uh, you know, uh, people did report on what happened and all of that. And they can say, well, we're not just we're not just going to be Trump robots and, you know, uh, let him throw these accusations out at Hunter Biden and report on them. We've done our work on it and people can judge it uh, as it is. And if he had, again, kept his powder dry, A, wouldn't have gotten impeached and B, uh, maybe he could have slammed Biden with Hunter in September of 2020 when, as we could see at the debate, Biden still doesn't have good answers for what Hunter has been up to, I think. Well, he also I also think he made a strategic error in the way he framed uh, his effort in 2019 to go after Hunter Biden, which is the details are not going to matter to voters. What matters is the the impression of kind of inside the beltway, you know, nepotism and and, and unfair dealing where your family profits off of your uh, someone else's position of power. And this is what always was getting Hillary Clinton I mean, th- this is what the Clinton Foundation kind of uh, encouraged as well. But that's not how he pitched the message. Like he got really into the weeds and in a way that I agree with you, John, was was an abuse of power in terms of the information he was seeking. All he needed to do was wait and say, he's a swamp creature. And if you want to know if you want and then list evidence of which the the kind of uh, largesse that was directed towards members of Biden's family is only one example. Right. I mean, he could actually go through and, and do that. I mean, even Biden's taxes, uh, you know, he's taken advantage of many of the same loopholes that everyone's criticizing Trump for. I mean, they, th- this is how it works. And he can point to that and try to rev- could have tried to revive his outsider status a little bit by doing that. But I think he just I think he doesn't understand that he was abusing power. I think he thinks, you know, he's my enemy. I'm going to go after him, whatever it takes. And, and it obviously led to a great deal of trouble for him. I maintain that if Donald Trump wants to make an issue of the beneficence afforded the adult children of powerful people in Washington, <laughs> he's among the worst people yes. to make that argument. And when he tried to make the argument against Hunter Biden, he went after him for personal issues, including his substance abuse, which is, again, callous in the extreme, considering his own brother passed away as a result of similar conditions. And it's one that elicits more sympathy from the public than contempt. 
and especially a, considering a the fundamental way he, misreading of the American people, especially considering the way he so obviously crowbarred it in. You know, he, he it didn't it, there was there was no place for it in the in the discussion at all. Well, I mean, it's almost as though he 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 fell. I don't think it was a trap, but he sort of fell for a Biden trap, which is that um, Biden, he figured, would at some point say my son, Bo was a military hero. He was no sucker. You you call our soldiers suckers. Shame on you. And he was going to say, oh, yeah, you got that son. Let's talk about your other son. And that, in fact, that was a terrible idea. Right. Well, that's and what maybe, a jerk does. That get no, but, cut, like, and maybe, <laughs> and maybe um, once again, uh, they have, which is what I said yesterday, they had Trump's number that by that the Biden people anticipated that by talking about Bo, Trump would go harder on Hunter. And therefore, Biden would be talking about his son who died tragically of cancer after serving this country. And Trump would not be able to resist then saying, oh, yeah, well, your other son is a you know crackhead. Just like, uh, what? Like, sorry, you know, so that he drew, he, he drew Trump, he threw Trump a kind of, you know, a false lure and Trump bit on it. And, and, uh, that's a slow acting poison. Cause of course that's not something that most people talked about in the immediate after people were talking about the shut up man and the proud boys and, you know, the racial stuff, but this is something that may have legs over the next three or four or five days. I mean, well, Trump just- attacked, Trump attacked Biden's son uh, for being a drug. It's one thing to say his son, you know, like uh, is a crook, right? <laughs> it's another to say his son is bad because he's, because uh, he abuses drugs. Cause there are a lot of Americans who have someone in their family who have you, you know, who has who has had a problem with with drug abuse? Well, one of the things that was interesting about that exchange uh, was that the "shut up man" line, which is the one we all agreed was sort of the takeaway from the evening, didn't come when he was being when his son was being personally attacked. Joe Biden said that when he was being asked to answer a very specific question about left wing violence, and he didn't want to answer it. Remember that? I mean, he was being pressed by Trump, who was you know kind of being very aggressive in his pressing. Granted. But he used that as a way to shut down his answering a question about Antifa and left wing violence. And it was that struck me in, as you said, John, like later looking back at the transcript, I was like, interesting, because he definitely doesn't want to condemn left wing violence. He doesn't even want to name it. Um, and that was the shut up man that everybody was praising him for. But in fact, you'd think that would be the comment that would come at the personal family attack. But it, it was it didn't. I just right. I just think there was a lot of Biden was much savvier than uh, I initially thought in terms of shutting down the stuff like court packing and left-wing violence that he just does not, and he will continue not to take a position on, which I think is terrible um, as he's likely to be our next president, but it's obviously working for him in the polls. So um, this melt, this possible meltdown has two, there are two ways that Trump can avoid it. <clears throat> One is that it's not really happening that it's a sugar high of the week whatever and that and that uh and that things will again start reverting to the mean next week and it'll be a four point race and then this question will be whether there are these secret trump voters uh, by the millions uh that are not posters aren't seeing cuz they haven't voted before 
So that's one possibility. And the other possibility is that um, somehow somebody is putting a finger on the scale here with the polling, which is, I think, what Republicans, or not Republicans, but sort of Trumpians really think, that the polls are, are they're push polls, and they're being used both to lie about Biden's support and to depress Trump's support. Because, of course, if he goes into election weekend down 10, the likely result isn't that Biden's, unlike I think what Christine was saying, the likely result isn't that Biden's people aren't going to go out and turn out the polls. It's that Trump's people are going to go, what, what's the point? Like, I don't, I don't, what do I need to bother for? Besides, I'm 67 years old and I don't want to get COVID at the poll, at the polling place. I've been waiting to vote on the day of the vote, but I, you know, I, I it's what, what's the point? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think I don't think the polls are pushed because there are just too many of them that are in agreement. And uh, I know too many people who work in this business. To, they they are not co- they're rivals. They don't coordinate with each other. They don't like each other. <laughs> you know they 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 they're competing for business, uh, corporate business and stuff like that. They are not all sitting in a room together coming up with the formula that is going to make it possible for them to have a common seven to 10% lead for Biden. Um, but maybe Trump can turn, I don't know. I mean, look, here's something interesting, that debate, 90 minutes, right? What is the most important responsibility of the president of the United States? Foreign policy. President is dominant in foreign policy in a way that he is not dominant in domestic policy or anything except maybe his own cultural, you know, presentation. Was there was there a question? Was anything raised about the Middle East, about the Abraham Accords? Anything raised about you know NATO or China or the South China Sea or Russia? But is that con- unconventional? It's it's my recollection that foreign policy is usually relegated to a debate or even part of a debate. Well, okay, so fine. So I'm old, so I'm almost 60 years old. So, you know, foreign policy used to be the dominating feature of debates. But of course, as I say, I you know, for me, that's memorable. For you, that's before you were born. I mean, Gerald Ford, who was charging in the polls back from 30 points down, to where he lost by two, tripped up in a debate and said there was no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. Because what he meant was the souls of Eastern Europeans are free and the Russians can't crush their soul. But he said there's no Soviet (laughs) domination of Eastern Europe. And so there was like, what? What is he talking about? Because that was an important matter to Americans then. And, you know, Star Wars and whatever. And, you know, what was one of the most memorable parts of the 2012 debate? You know, they the 1980s called and asked for its foreign policy back. Yeah, but it was a debate. Even in 2004, there was a foreign policy debate like dedicated right. to foreign policy. Right. But let's just think about the meltdown of 2017. There were three different meltdowns in 2017 on foreign policy. There was the, he's going to start a nuclear war with North Korea. Fire and fury, the likes of which we've never seen, right? People are sleeping in bunk. People were crying. I was on Morning Joe and it was like, my children couldn't sleep last night because they're afraid that we're going to have a nuclear war with North Korea. There was that bizarre moment in Hawaii 
where they got some kind of alert that missiles were coming in uh, for 20 minutes, right? I mean, that was 2017. It's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. And we have a foreign policy pandemic issue here because we have the WHO's behavior. We have China's behavior. Trump mentioned we don't know what the stats are from China and India and Russia. So we don't know what the death toll is there while you say that we have the worst death toll and all of that. And 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 Chris Wallace didn't pick up on it. And there was no sense in which the single most important feature of a president's power was engaged with at all at this event that 81 million people watched. Now, maybe that's really because people don't care anymore. Oh, what about well, people? People what never care about foreign policy. So they do. They did. They maybe they don't now, but they did. I mean, Barack Obama got won the Democratic nomination because he voted a certain way because he had give gave a speech as a set as a state senator senatorial candidate in in Illinois against the Iraq War in two thousand two. Yeah, but I, I know this is a fine distinction. But that foreign policy matters insofar as it relates to domestic policy when you have troops abroad. And you're talking about Americans and American lives. We have troops abroad. Yeah, um, we should have don't more we? focus on this, but we right. we simply don't because it's just a we're not producing casualties from these yeah. conflicts, which is a good thing. Yeah. Um, but that also results in less concern yeah. from the general public. If but we're look, veering Trump's, into the prospect right. of a Biden presidency, um, foreign policy is where you should probably be the most concerned because the Trump presidency has a pretty good record on foreign policy in the aggregate, and Joe Biden has a terrible one. The Washington Post. Um, deputy editorial page editor Jackson Deal wrote this piece for the Post, um, which is headlined, Joe Biden doesn't have a perfect record on foreign policy, but unlike Trump, he's learned from his mistakes. And if you go through the, the piece, it doesn't suggest at any point that Joe Biden has learned anything. It is dedicated, in fact, only to retroactively conditioning readers to believe that Biden's instincts were actually good. Um, there's no evidence of any contrition on the part of Joe Biden from uh from his opposition to taking in Vietnamese refugees, to opposing the first Iraq war, to opposing the Afghan surge, to opposing the uh, the OBL raid. He's got a pretty awful record. Um, but you're just supposed to accept the fact that this contradictory assumption here that either his instincts were bad, but he's learned from them, but also his instincts on Afghanistan were actually pretty good. And you should support that too. They don't, they haven't figured out how to message this and Joe Biden hasn't even tried. Um, in part because there's no pressure on them. Look, that that's something that, that, that there's a missed opportunity for Trump that he, you know, maybe he could he could uh, in the next two debates say, uh, "You you kowtowed to the Iranians. I put pressure on them, and as a result, in part, uh, Israel is making peace deals all over the Middle East. That's because of me. And if we had followed your lead." And done everything that you wanted, we would have effectively sided with the bad guy, and been a, an enemy of the of of a the good guy, and then the people who are willing to make deals with the good guy. He could say that. He could say, uh, "You say that you were against the surge in Afghanistan and all that. I'm trying to bring people home, and I get no help from you, buddy." Because when I I inherited a mess in Afghanistan, that's your administration. You can't claim all the wonderful glories of the administration and not take responsibility for the for the failures that you're responsible for. Yeah, da 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 da. You know, China, whatever. And then, but he doesn't know how to prosecute a case. He knows how to be an insult comic, and he knows how to and he knows how to sort of throw out um, 
headline tidbits that if you don't know what he's talking about, you'll have no idea what he's talking about. As I, as I said the, on the night of the debate, he has the worst defenses for the best policies. <laughs> Well, and and, and particularly with the foreign policy, right? Because he personalizes everything about foreign policy in a way that is deeply frustrating when he tries to get out a message. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go on. No, that's okay. That's okay. No, no, it's but it's like what uh, Noah alluded to yesterday. Trump sort of references, he cites events um, um, sort of glancingly without discussing them. You know, he, he, he sort of lists them elliptically, you know, barely. And um, and that and that's his version of, of defending something. And if you're a plugged in conservative, that works for you because, you know, the story. Right. And you're energized by the story. And if he references the story, you say, I know that story. He's right. But not everybody knows the story. Right. You have to tell the story. Look, I'll give you an example of that. He made this. He said this weird thing toward the end of the debate about how. And we just learned today that Hillary was responsible for the whole thing. <laughs> and I was like. Now, what is he talking about? I don't really understand what he, the whole hoax is Hillary's. And so I have published how many tens of thousands of words have I edited on the mistakes in the Russia probe, the evil of the Russia probe, the injustice done to Michael Flynn, the injustice done to Carter Page. Eli Lake has written about this for us extensively and will continue to do so. And, you know, I've read the reports, I've read the transcripts, I know this, I know that. I had no idea what he was talking about, because apparently it turns out that John, the the director of national intelligence, released some information that day that uh, uh, saying somehow that the Hillary campaign got in touch with the CIA to try to help activate some kind of an investigation into Trump in 2016. Now, I don't know what evidence there is. I sort of looked at the letter. It's kind of thin. But me- meanwhile, yesterday, or the day before I say, James Comey testified in front of the Senate and and did a kind of, uh, you know, Sergeant Schultz, I know nothing. I know nothing. I know nothing. When did you know about Carter Pitt? When did you know that the, that the you know, that the... Uh, the dossier was uh, it was likely a fraud, and what about Michael Flynn and all this? And and Comey, who is about who is right now the subject of an encomia on Showtime, a two part docu series based on his revolting, self aggrandizing book, like sat there like you know uh, one of the not to use a Godfather Part Two reference again, but you know like Frankie Five Angels saying. Ah! I don't know what you're talking about, Ted. I don't know nothing. I don't know nothing. Right? I mean, <laughs> uh, Trump could go with that, but he you have to like bone up on it, get the answer concise, memorize the paragraph so that it comes out of you fluidly, so that Biden looks like the deer in the headlights when you're finished. You can't go, well, it's the Hillary hoax thing, it's the whole thing. You know, it's like what I if you watched at four o'clock on Fox, you'd know, right? But, that, but you know, three hundred and twenty-seven million people aren't watching Fox at four o'clock. Well, and that speaks to Noah's point. It's been a it's been a weakness of Trump's communication style all along. Is that he's only he, he's always talking to people he assumes are in his same bubble who will all watch the same things, listen to the same things. It's why, like I said, it felt like you were unwittingly in that late night phone conversation with Trump where he's railing about the latest memo or the latest this and that. You're already expected to know 
number one, that he's been wronged and victimized. And number two, that he's the best and he's going to get to the bottom of this. And it doesn't matter what the details are like that, that, that rhetorical style of his, which worked very well for him among true believers on the campaign trail in 2016, doesn't help now. And given the, the scale of the crisis, I mean, the one thing he could do with regard to COVID and foreign policy in the next debate is to turn the safety, I will keep you safe message that Biden has used to great effect and did use in the debate on Tuesday, turn it around and say, actually, if you want to keep America safe. If you care about this country, here's how all the foreign policy stuff I do keeps us safe. And here's everything that he does that will actually risk greater terrorism conflict, all the stuff, you know, he he could do that, but he won't. He'll talk about how all the, the top leaders love him. You know, all the strong men listen to right. him. I'll tell you what triggered that revelation <clears throat> for me during the debate was when he was confronted with the, I mean, led by the nose to talk about permissive Democratic officials in urban centers who have been presiding over a summer of uh, looting and rioting and vandalism and uh, harassment. And he just sort of, again, just sort of referenced the existence of this story and then dove into statistics about Chicago, which is a city that least exemplifies this condition. I mean, that predates the, the violence in Chicago predates 2020. It does not, it does not um, illustrate his tough on crime message, which is a, a weak spot for Democrats and one that Joe Biden demonstrated he couldn't navigate effectively when it fell to Chris Wallace to talk about Portland explicitly. I mean, it's bad for Chicago. Portland and he's yeah. like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not I'm not even who am I? What am I going to say to the to guy in Portland? Me, the head of the Democratic Party, the personal embodiment, couldn't talk to the to the mayor of Portland about any of this stuff. It was a real missed opportunity for Joe Biden that could have been exploited. But Donald Trump can't tell the story. It's an easy story. And every conservative who watched it was like, yeah, I believe, I, I, I've been following the news. I see that. I understand it. But millions don't. Okay, so let's get even more depressing uh, for our last segment here and talk about the following. If Trump is melting down, Biden is going to be the president of the United States. And we are getting little bits of evidence. Now, a, a lot of the arguments that we make are very broad brush, right? Democratic Party is going, you know, now is uh, the... Root base of the Democratic Party is now friendly towards socialism, at least the word socialism, uh, bad, uh, hostile to Israel, um, you know, has terrible ideas about uh, divisive ideas about race and all that. Okay, so these are broad brush things, but there are practical policy consequences that will that will be imposed on day one of a Biden administration that people need to start preparing themselves for, not only emotionally, but practically in terms of how to start um, not only uh, advancing arguments against them as they happen, but also if they need to start uh, grassroots organizing to uh, mitigate the damage and also maybe to change the political realities in the United States Congress for 2022 because of the almost certain democratic overreach that will happen uh, once these policies are affected. So Christine, you have one, I think very powerful Dude, hobby example horse, of hobby this. horse. One of my hobby yeah. horses. Uh, well, it's that, more than a hobby horse. <laughs> so the, uh, the Obama administration's um, uh, title nine executive order that basically without any public comment changed the, enforcement of Title IX on college campuses with regard to sexual assault and sexual harassment um, and denied due process to people accused of sexual assault and sexual harassment 
was overturned by the Department of Education under Betsy DeVos after the the uh, procedures that Obama should have followed but didn't were followed. Public comment, discussion, rule change. That's how it's supposed to work. Joe Biden has already gone on the record saying he will reverse that. And one assumes he will do it the same way that, you know, uh, Obama did with an executive order. So not only are we going to deny the American people once again the procedural process of registering their concern, but we're going to then roll back due process rights, which, by the way, have particular uh, irony, given that under the rules and restrictions uh, and denial of due process under the Obama and one assumes Biden administrations, the sexual harassment and assault allegations made against someone like Joe Biden, if he was a college student, would probably get him expelled. Um, so that that sort of denial of due process for college students that has been briefly restored and embraced by people on the left and right of the spectrum who care about due process will likely be gone again. And that's really worrisome to me. This is another subject that we've written about extensively in commentary dating back to 2010. And I uh, um, say, Abe, yes. Uh, who, who, if you remember, this is uh, maybe I'm putting it on the spot, but who, do you remember who wrote the first major piece on the Title IX sexual harassment disaster at the Department of Education? I'll tell you who, Jennifer Rubin. Ah. When Jennifer Rubin, you know, wasn't uh, wasn't uh, you know cow- kowtowing uh, to the uh, to the Democratic Party that she once reviled. So I should put that piece up and see if she'll <laughs> link to it because um, I, I doubt she will. But uh, Jen Rubin, uh, Casey Johnson That's of Brooklyn was, that, College, that was my guess. has also written extensively for us on the abuses in these cases, and we're talking now about. Literally now, at least 150 lawsuits filed that I believe the record is something like 148 to 2. Lawsuits that filed judges by students, and courts, yeah. private lawsuits law- by students who, who were yeah, who were railroaded by right. yeah, railroaded by star chambers, and these cases are overwhelmingly seem to take place uh, under circumstances of students um, having uh, you know depressing bad sexual uh encounters with each other and then a person at after it happens or a couple of days after it happens deciding that he or she so hated the experience that it must have been that he or she was um somehow raped uh even though there's and and so basically the accused student has no right to, to bring witnesses, has no right to know what the charges are against them. Right, I was going to say, they can't even can read ex- the complaint in some cases. They yeah. can't read the complaint. And there is an entire administrative structure that was put in place in these colleges with um, you know, uh, ad- administrators and bureaucrats uh, hired for the specific purpose of tilting toward the accuser. And the, and the, the guidance given by the Department of Education was that you weren't supposed to use a legal standard of innocent until proven guilty, but it's standard of preponderance of evidence. Meaning if you had 51% evidence that suggested to you that the, that the bad deed was done, that was all you needed. Um, and, and that was the key change that has led to this really horrific, you know, Salem witch trial situation on campuses. And that will be reversed in a week. Mm-hmm. When Biden is president, that guidance will be rewritten and lifted, just like uh, you know the Mexico City rules on abortion will be. Is it reimposed or revoked? I can never remember. 
But that is uh, that we will once again start supporting um, inst- uh, international institutions that advocate for or pay for abortions. Right. That, I mean, that, 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 that'll be, that's, that's always the first thing that happens in a Republican or Democratic business. Somebody either revokes that or signs it. And I can't remember which, which the Mexico City rules are, are the, are the, are the pro, pro life or the pro choice rules. But, but that'll happen. Can we think of anything else? I mean, Biden says he's not going to eliminate. I have a, oh, go ahead, please. Uh, so I have a scenario that might be a little bit heartening for Republicans, and I, I really feel like this is going to happen. <clears throat> so Joe Biden wins the presidency. It looks like now Republicans might lose the Senate. That's up in the air. Who knows? But the, the odds are increasingly favoring a, a Democratic, narrow Democratic takeover of the chamber. Joe Biden will enter office with a whole lot of progressives depending on him making good on the promises he has made on spending. He wants to quadruple federal spending on low-income housing, triple federal spending on K through 12, double Pell Grants to make community colleges free, a $100 billion investment in the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, a transportation platform that includes $10 billion in special assets for transportation projects, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. We're broke. There ain't no money for this. And guess what the first priority is going to be for a Biden administration? COVID relief. And there will be COVID relief. But there ain't going to be anything left for all these ambitious projects. And this yields to a very familiar scenario going back to 2009-2010. When Barack Obama took office and launched into an effort to relieve the pressure on the American people from the uh, collapse of the mortgage market, stimulus, financial regulatory form, what have you. This enraged Republicans energized Republicans to the point where they were leading in the generic ballot by 2010. But progressives were not satisfied by this. They did not have a progressive uh, reform along the lines of the Affordable Care Act to rally around. In fact, the Affordable Care Act was kind of languishing at that point. And while it took was a natural disaster, the well, sort of natural disaster, a man-made disaster in the form of the Horizons oil spill, to create this torrent of backlash against Barack Obama from his left, and it was, they were frustrated with his performance on the oil spill, but it had nothing to do with the oil spill. It was about everything that he had promised that he hadn't delivered on, and they turned on him. Now, it wasn't permanent, but it was enough to get Republicans over the line in 2010 to retake, uh, I think they took both chambers or one chamber, I forget. No, they took one. They took the one House chamber. in 2010 and the Senate in 2014. Yeah, so the, the, the seeds for the backlash are right there. He cannot make good on these spending proposals. I don't see how he does. And progressives will use that opportunity to say, well, look, this he is who he thought he was. He was always going to abandon us. But they don't have any other recourse but to just get despondent. Meanwhile, Republicans will energize, organize, and win elections. And that fringe left that, that Trump has been ineffectively trying to tar uh, Biden with has already stated, if you read their publications like the, like Jacobin and some of the others, they've already said about the street violence, for example, that Biden's not, it's not going to change much if Biden wins for them, from their perspective, because their perspective, as we've discussed often on, on the podcast, is is sort of destructive of all institutions that they think represent, you know, systemic capitalism racism, sexism, every ism you can imagine. So Biden is just yet another tool in this in this oppressive system. So I another prediction, which I hope doesn't come true, but might, is that Biden might temporarily calm some of the his his election might temporarily calm some of the street violence and street protests. But that's not going to last either. Well, what I'm what I'm certain will happen, and this is related, 
um, is that um, a Biden will Biden's becoming president will not only immediately nullify Trump's executive order on um, banning um, critical race theory and sensitivity training for government contractors, um, but the Biden administration will ramp up that stuff. I mean, because that if you are a sort of fellow traveler among the to, to the identity set, you you view um, this this sensitivity training and and these sort of courses and how to be around people uh, of a different race from you um, as a sort of easy gimme as a, it's not, it's not that radical. What's as, as even sort of, Oh, um, and it's so important right. and it's so, it's so beautiful because it's really, a you kind have of to a, do a, the work. You have to do right. the work. Yeah. You gotta, right. you gotta do the work. And, exactly. and in fact, it's, it's horrifying stuff. It's, it is, it, it, there's sort of segregating um, aspects involved in the actual training um, it is Trump was right. It, it is about um, te- forced confessions, forced confessions, and it is about teaching about a, a fundamentally bad United States of America. Right. Um, I uh, uh, I don't think that uh, Noah's history of Obama in 2010 uh, is is really c- quite got it right, but I do think that it is true that there was deep disappointment uh, on the left that um, the Affordable Care Act did not, in the end, feature the public option. And uh, one of the comic aspects of this was that uh, what you hear when people talk about this is the rage, the rage that uh, jo- that uh, Republicans blocked the Affordable Care Act from having a public, because they wouldn't agree at all this. Republicans had 39 seats in the Senate, and then and then finally got a 40th when Scott Brown won Teddy Kennedy's Senate seat. But they couldn't block anything. They couldn't block the stimulus. They couldn't block Dodd-Frank. They couldn't block the creation of the consumer safety Elizabeth Warren give me a job commission. Um, they, they couldn't block anything. The person who blocked the public option on the Affordable Care Act was Joe Lieberman, who uh, you know, was uh, by that point the most conservative member of the Democratic caucus in the U.S. Senate and not a fan of socialism or of government, uh, uh, you know, sponsored health care. And when Obama talked about this and Democrats talked about this, Obama would say things like, I was negotiating with the Republicans and they wouldn't negotiate with me as though Lieberman had were a Republican. He was not a Republican but in order to get the 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 fortieth vote, uh, the you know the sixtieth vote to close debate and have the and have the bill pass, he had to drop the public option. And yeah, uh, the most radical elements in the who are o- who are only looking for um, socialized health care were uh, disappointed. But as I wrote in a piece on the day after the twenty ten congressional uh, shellacking. We would know the degree to which Obama was threatened by his failure at the polls if there was a significant Democratic challenge to him in the primaries in 2012. And I speculated that were there to be such a thing, the person to sp- the person to do it would have been Russ Feingold, the senator from Wisconsin, <clears throat> who was that person who said Barack Obama was a failure because we didn't get the public option and Feingold didn't run. And there was no challenge to Obama because in fact, uh, he, he was bulletproof. 
in his own party, Biden will not be bulletproof. Biden has no bulletproofing. He's not the first African-American president. He is coming in uh, at the, he will be coming in effectively not at the tail end of the pandemic, but certainly at a point at which he will be handed the modalities by which there will probably be a vaccine or two uh, in, in, in the works or in the offing. And, um, and he has already said he's a caretaker and he is not an inspiring figure. He's not God, which is what, you know, who said he was God? Evan Thomas said he was God. He's like Jesus. You know, Biden doesn't have any of that. And so his margin for error with his own rump is bad the way, you know, like they could be to the Democrats what Ted Cruz and the Tea Party were to the organizing Republicans. I mean, Mitch McConnell does not like Ted Cruz. Mitch McConnell had to count, had to sort of like give in to Ted Cruz in 2013 when Ted Cruz wanted to shut the Senate down, shut the government down because he didn't know how to get out of it. And, and so, uh, you know, could Biden find himself in a position where he has a, he has the squad and who knows else sort of like there as his disloyal, not as disloyal, not as loyal opposition, but his like disloyal camp followers. Oh yeah. Having said that, that is a that the program that Biden has laid out is the most left wing program that any candidate will ever run on, and so as a as a matter simply of where the what the platform on which the this administration will stand, all of these things that we're talking about, Title IX, you know, all these policies that are effectuated, and of course things like regulatory actions by the you know how how regulations are dealt with at the at the agencies judicial selection all of that stuff um will be just not only move will not only shift to the left but will likely shift to the far left and that is like i say what we have to gird gird ourselves for and get ready for for battle because the battle is not you know as I keep getting emails, like people saying people aren't being fair to the proud boys. If that's where the conservative mo- you know, populist mind is going to go here is that the media are being unfair to the proud boys or unfair to Trump who, wa- who, who wanted to uh, condemn white supremacy, but he, he couldn't get there for some reason. I don't know why he couldn't get there. All he had to do was hail a taxi and he could have gotten there. Um, but if that's where they're going to go, is they're going to sort of go to this bizarre, uh, the extremes of the culture war, rather than practical, practical engagement with the kinds of issues that the Biden people are going to throw at us every single day. And also, can I just point out, they still yeah. have a lot of loyalists inside these bureaucracies because four years is not long enough to totally do the gut renovation that that two terms as a as a president can do. You know, replacing people. There are a lot of people who have just been kind of sitting tight during this Trump term and will be happy to turn the wheels back towards the left with all these policies and regulations. But where Trump has been effective at remaking an institution in his own image is the Republican Party. Republican Party, the RNC, the committees are very much largely staffed with people who were appointed in this Trump term. And I wonder if they have it in them to perform anything approaching 
a critical retrospective on the Trump presidency um, because it would be self-critical. Um, do they have it in them to perform an autopsy or would they prefer to just simply chalk this up as an act of God, something that could have not been avoided because it was imposed on us by China. It was imposed on us by a whole variety of circumstances over which we had no control. Do we even need to change gears? Well, that's an open question to me. In fact, I'm leaning in the direction that they would probably choose to believe that it was something outside of their control and they did nothing wrong. Well, that would be the oh. Trumpian approach. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm sure of it. I'm sure there there is going to be a there is well, Ronnie McDaniel say you know we we made a huge mistake here and the, the president owns some blame. I can't imagine it. There is no way that will happen, <laughs> and the stab in the back narrative will be the narrative of a significant part of the Republican Party, which is why the co- Republican coalition is going to go into frenzies of collapse, like. The general proposition that 90% of Republicans like Trump is going to be tested by the election in this sense, which is that maybe it's true, but then there are going to be way, there are way fewer Republicans in, in 2020 than there might have been in 2016. Uh, one of the ways that you get those numbers is because people leave and they, they start identifying as independents or as something else. And so if the Republican Party is appreciably smaller and remains you know, sort of in the Trump narrative thrall, I, it's hard to know w- w- what's what's going to be. Because, I mean, obviously, the, the real never-Trumpers have written themselves out of this discussion. They are supporters of Biden. They have, they have basically, they, they, they don't want, they didn't want Kavanaugh to be confirmed. They don't want Barrett to be confirmed. They are, they are no longer reliable believers in the notion that what matters is policy. It is that, you know, this uh, evil personality took over America and needed to be reversed and destroyed and contained by any means necessary. And they will not, they are not going to have a voice. They can't go back. But I keep saying like, historically, we are well, it's like waiting for the big earthquake to hit California. We're well past a point historically where one of the parties either implodes or reconfigures in such a way that it draws on new coalitions. I mean, this is a very long time that we've had these two parties, even though we've had like, you know, on the fringes on both sides, briefly have more power and influence. Um, And this, you know, Trump might be the thing that breaks down one side's party to the point where new formations have to be made in the same way that I think the if, if Biden kowtows to the extreme left, that there are still centrist liberals out there who are not comfortable with a lot of that message and, and certainly right. with a lot of that spending. <laughs> right. Okay. But you could also have the uh, alternate scenario, which is that go back uh, to 1968. Nixon wins a, a sliver of an election. In 1972, McGovern gets 37% of the vote. Carter battles back to a little under 50 uh, uh, then lose, gets 40% in 1980. Mondale loses 49 states in 1984. And uh, the senior Bush gets 53% in 1988. It is uh, the first, it is, uh, what is it? 16 years between the Carter victory and the Clinton victory. But that entire time, the Democrats had, you know, not that entire time, excuse me, because Reagan, but but from 72 to 94, dating back to 54, Democrats had the House uninterrupted. Uh, Democrats have the House now. Republicans have the Senate. That could change. Uh, 
the Democratic Party could not have been in worse shape, but it entropically, once again, held the House and, uh, and, and, and the Senate really throughout the 1970s, by the way, uh, until 1980. And so uh, the party may not have to reconstitute itself because if Biden is the caretaker who lets the left run away with his administration, 2022 will be another shellacking, just like 2010 was a shellacking and 2018 was a shellacking and 1994 was a shellacking. But things don't happen entropically like that. You do have to put some effort into it. And right. just to underline the, this the point here for anybody who's listening to this, who who really doesn't believe that they have to gird their loins or make any sort of inventory or prepare themselves for this prospect because the polls are all wrong. Um, the Republican Senate leadership fund at this hour, which is devoted to maintaining the Republican Senate majority sunk $10 million into South Carolina to defend Lindsey Graham. South Carolina is a battleground state in 2020. And by the way, that has consequence. Like, this is where the race... Yeah, that's not going to go to Michigan. Is the race nationalized? Right. Mean, the reason you, you say Michigan is because that is the one prospect, aside from Alabama, of a Republican pickup. Uh, James in Michigan is doing shockingly well <clears throat> against uh, the sitting Senator Peters. And so uh, if, the, if, if the Senate could pump $20 million in there, if the Senate Victory Fund could pump to it, they would, and they're not going to be able to. And, and so, yeah, I mean, and by the way, if <clears throat> South Carolina is a swing state in the Senate or is a jump ball, we don't know what that's going to mean for the two seats in Georgia. We really don't. Or North Carolina or Florida or Iowa or well, Ohio, North Carolina. Or Arizona. I mean, this, yeah. The, yeah, it's, if it's a, but to take your premise, if it's a nationalized race, it's a nationalized race. These right. swings are uniform. Right. That's not how to think uniform, but, right. you know, yeah. broadly. No, that's what a wave means. A wave means that if things are breaking, they're breaking. And that's one of the reasons why you can actually see this as the meltdown starting. Because um, there are no, with the exception of James in Michigan, there are no good signs for Republicans anywhere on this map. <laughs> None. Uh, the last poll of Georgia has uh, Ossoff and Purdue tied. I mean, this is not we are we are in territory that is like I don't know is like 1980 potentially, where Biden without John Anderson in the race, where uh, Biden is turning into turning into Reagan against the one-term incumbent. I'm sorry. Uh, to be the bearer of this, these tidings, what can I do? Uh, there's nothing we can do. We're just here to ruin your day. So we'll be back tomorrow to ruin your weekend. <laughs> For Abe, no, wait, it's tomorrow? Wait, tomorrow is Thursday, Friday, right? Yeah. yeah, this is Thursday. Okay. So for Abe, Christine, and Noah, in anticipation of ruining your weekend, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.